Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome, dear listeners, back to our podcast, I Want to Have a Baby in You. We took a little bit of a break for the various holidays. Jen. Uh, which, which included my favorite, which oh. is Fest- Festivus. Oh, um, happy Festivus to the rest of us, right? More about your family's traditions on Festivus. Oh, okay, fine. No, so, okay, the, no, this, this, I, I don't want to admit that this is family traditions, right? No, <laughs> since Festivus includes like the airing of grievances and feats of strength, like, I don't want people to imagine us doing stuff like that. That, that seems horrible, right? <laughs> what, what kind of feats of strength? I, I don't like arm wrestling. I, I don't know. Like since since we were in Mexico, like you know, it was like who could swim the longest. I guess is that like oh, a okay. strength? That's um, not, not who could weird. sit by the pool longest without moving? Is that is that also? I think that's a feat of strength, quite honestly. So, <laughs> um, no, I you know we have awesome traditions for holidays, right? Because we do not exchange gifts, and we all go as a family on a trip, which is awesome because we make tons of great memories. Um, What's your favorite holiday? Oh, my favorite holiday. Um, I mean, I really like this season in general because I'm a big sucker for like lights and like all the neighborhood putting lights up and even uh, near where we live, like they just like put this drive through thing where you, they put up lights that like flash in a way to music and it has like the lights moving so it shows like a singing um snowman and trees accompanying it so are you going through withdrawal right now that's actually my (coughs) worst part is after the holidays when everybody takes down the lights and it gets really really dark yeah sometimes they leave them up for a little while so okay okay i just that that withdrawal feeling always makes me a little sad (laughs) but let's go on to this very exciting episode uh it is an absolute honor to have steve snyder on who has been one of my um heroes models goals i don't know goals but he's um he's a very prominent attorney in the area of assisted reproductive technology he's um been around for a long time has lots of great experience he is one of the leading voices across the world where he's showing up in Europe and, you know, expressing the different views that, um, you know, that we have in America versus other countries might have. So he's been a really great uh, representative for for yeah. our country. Yeah. Huge advocates for all things <laughs> the reproductive technology. So yay. All right. Without further ado, let's, let's talk to Steve. Welcome Steve Snyder to the podcast. Steve, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to visit. Steve, by way of introduction, for if there's any listener who doesn't know who you are, which is probably not probably possible, not true, yeah, everyone knows who you are. <laughs> we will try to briefly touch on some of uh, just a few of your credentials. Otherwise, it would take the entire hour podcast to do it. But you were you are the past chair of the American Bar Association's Assisted Reproductive Technology Committee with the Family Law Section. Um, I can see from your website you were on the cover of attorney at law as the attorney of the month. Um, impressive. Uh, I know you've won numerous awards, including uh, we were there for your ceremony that the um, organization Seeds, the Society for Ethics and Egg Donation and Surrogacy, had um, people who are nominated to be their 
Rising Star, I think it was. Shining Star. Shining Star. Shining shining Star. And I have to say, Jen and I are honored to speak with you about this because both of us were nominated and we were honored to lose to you when you won the award. (laughs) If we're going to lose to anyone, we wanted to be with Steve Snyder. That's exactly Um, right. So just a kind of a bit of a taste of what um, a presence you are in our in our um, in our field with the law. But before we kind of dive into the big topics we want to talk about, which is especially international law in this area, we would love to hear some background from you. So, Steve, tell us about your childhood and how that led you <laughs> to be a surrogacy what attorney. You here. <laughs> Well, it, it's it probably rooted in my childhood because I was a child of divorced parents and largely fed like they were more attentive to each other. So when I became a parent, my children were like the center of my universe. Oh, that's And great. my two children are the most important part of my life. They've made me a better person. And I think being a father is probably the best thing I've ever been able to accomplish in my life. And that passion or priority in my life for my children is what opened the door and gave me the awareness when a situation presented itself that this is the field I wanted to work in. Now, I came out of law school like in another dimension, 1982, (laughs) and There was no such thing as surrogacy law. BBM hadn't happened. Nobody knew what was going on. I never had any aspiration to be an assisted reproductive technology attorney. And there probably wasn't that terminology in existence then. Right. (laughs) So I just came out, um, worked at a couple of firms, eventually established my own firm. And again, the reason I established my own firm was because I wanted to be a sole practitioner to govern my schedule so I could go to school conferences and coach my kids' teams and have them come home after school and lay their homework on my desk. Yeah. And I did that for 20 years. What what did you coach? Um, Well, I played football in college. I coached high school football and wrestling when I taught high school for five years before I went to law school. And oh, then that was when before my cho- law school. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I actually had a life. I actually had a socially <laughs> redeeming job before I went to law school. So what made you make that jump from being a high school teacher to then going to law school? Well, my father was a lifelong educator. He was a very renowned uh, school administrator. And so that led me into education. Um, the lack of remunerative reward led me to consider another option. And my mother worked as a head bookkeeper for a law firm. So I was very familiar as a tag along down at her law firm. So that was my second choice. So I checked off both boxes of both parents and I've been doing law now for almost four. Oh God, almost 40 years. <laughs> don't count. Years. Don't count. Yeah. Don't count. <laughs> don't count. <laughs> ah! So Um, so I, I tried them both and I enjoyed them both. I mean, I love teaching. I think teachers are the most undervalued asset in the entire country. I agree with all of the posts on Facebook that talk about how they work uncompensated overtime and pay out of their own pocket for supplies. So 
it's not as though I didn't think that job was worthwhile. And I have the ultimate respect for people that stay in it for their entire careers. It just wasn't for me. And I went back to law school on a sabbatical from my teaching, thinking I might go back because I may suck at law school. And then I went to law school and I went, oh, this isn't so hard. (laughs) So I actually graduated. They gave me a license and I started practicing. Now, when I was practicing as a sole practitioner in the basement of my house with two part-time secretaries uh, and kind of raising my kids as a single dad. Oh, I didn't know you raised your kids as a single dad. Yeah, I, you know, love my children's mother, just not so much. And... (laughs) You love her from afar. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was doing a general family practice so I could work for my neighbors and friends and people that I knew. And a guy I played football with in college who was a personal injury attorney had a client that was a personal injury client and his wife was given a contract and told you have to have this reviewed by an attorney. So of course, this struggling PI attorney reviewed her contract, which was a surrogacy contract. And I'm sure he malpracticed, but (laughs) nothing bad happened. And then nine months later, she went back to him and said, well, this German couple is coming over to take their baby home. And he went, well, I don't know how to do that. But I know this guy that does family law in Maple Grove. Why don't you call Steve? So they called me, and I'd never heard of it, but I was intrigued by the challenge of it, and I knew a particular judicial officer in our largest county that would be equally intrigued. So I went to him, and I said, well, here's what I got to do. How do you think we can accomplish this in keeping with our law? Mm. And he and I formulated a process that was successful in sending the German couple home with their baby so the agency wow. that had matched that couple said, oh, we got a guy in Minnesota yes. that knows how to do this. Let's <laughs> send him more business. Uh-huh. And what, so what I, year was that? 1991. Wow. Wow. And you paved the way in Minnesota. That's amazing. Yeah. So over the 30 years since then, uh, judges and county attorneys and other people in the process have assisted in honing the process that I initiated. And actually the process that I initiated has now been adopted statewide by a court administrative procedure. And I've initiated the first new case type heading in Minnesota in 20 years for art. So they've kind of internalized everything I do here and it's very reliable. It's just not pursuant to any surrogacy statute. Yes. So that's how my career got started. And then after I kind of started on that path, I went, well, let's join the ABA. And I know they have a model act out there. Let's go see what's going on with that. So I went to my first ABA family law section conference. And at that time, the art or assisted reproductive technology committee was just one of 20 little subgroups they had, all of which were relatively invisible and ineffective. Mm. But they had it. They had a committee. So there were people doing it. They had a committee. I sat at the table my first conference. There were five people Ah. there. Wow. Two law professors, one neurosurgeon that happened to also have an interest in the medical process. One other 
art, primarily adoption attorney that was looking at art yeah. and me. Wow. And I went, hmm, <laughs> there is something broken here. And I think we need to get more practitioners involved. So I just started participating in the committee activities. And every time I talked to anybody on the phone, I said, you need to join the ABA art committee. <laughs> and then after two or three years of my little fingers in the pot, the membership grew. I participated in honing the 17-year-old model act into something that I thought could pass the House of Delegates and was made chair. And the first year I was made chair of the committee, we passed the ABA Model Act to govern assisted reproductive technology after it had languished in the committee for 17 years. And over the next seven years, the committee's grown to several hundred members and is an effective education and support and mentorship entity for people that want to practice this kind of law, which is the vision that we all had in the beginning. That's incredible. Wow. And the funny part is now I go to ABA family law conferences, and I think I've been to a number where the art section kind of overwhelms the family law section. I think they were often at times bigger, right? Well, all of those 20 subcommittees, including art, didn't have CLE tracks. They just occasionally proposed a topic for the general family law membership. And I said, you guys, you know what? There's nothing that you're presenting here that is going to bring art attorneys to your conferences. And art attorneys need their own education. So I'm encouraging you to be open to the idea that our committee should be the only one in the family law section that has its entirely different identity and CLE track. And I fought tooth and nail with institutional resistance over about three or four years, but it eventually happened. So we are kind of like a, an independent section within a section but don't tell anybody <laughs> in the family law leadership. Uh, well, attorneys like me are very grateful for that and have truly benefited from your leadership and allowing that educational track and providing education for attorneys like me that want to learn. Thank you. Well, it's important. You're welcome. <laughs> and I think it's important to have an entity that is inclusive and has no boundaries that you have to circumvent or overcome to become a productive member. So I think the ABA in the area is the one place that everybody can come and feel welcome. And I really think we create an open, welcoming, both professional and social environment so people feel more connected and more appreciated. And I hope it always is like that. Yeah. No. And I, I, I think you're right and appreciate that. And I think you've been a big source of helping it be that way. So aside from um, starting That's the U.S. though, we got to right. go international from establishing the system in Minnesota, taking the first case there, um, starting one of the biggest educational institutions that provide um, a source for for training for art law attorneys in the United States. What what else have you done with your spare time? <laughs> I mean, no, specifically, um, we do want to talk about international. So I know you do a lot of work internationally. Can you tell us about that? Well, you can look at infertility through a number of different lenses. And there are different types of infertility, whether it's male, female, uh, 
non-viable sperm, non-viable egg, or non-viable uterus. And the levels of fertility can dictate what you're in favor of and what you're not, or the type of infertility can dictate what you're in favor of and what you're not. Now, fortunately, the United States has evolved from its initial experiences in the area with baby M. And for, I do feel like most people know what baby M is, but just kind of for those who may be newer, this might be their first episode to listen to you. Um, baby M is the case out of New Jersey where in a traditional surrogacy, a woman who was acting as a traditional surrogate, meaning she was genetically related to the child she was carrying, changed her mind about um, having the intended parent raise the child and fled the state, I believe, and even possibly threatened to kill the child. I I know there's some pretty scary facts, Um, but it started this outrage that um, really made people question surrogacy in general and led to New Jersey outlawing surrogacy as well as New York. And of course, New Jersey has has since switched back 30 years later, but New York has not. How was that summary, Steve? <laughs> That's a good summary. And, and Baby M was a seminal case for the initial resistance to the process because it was a traditional surrogacy. And there was no surrogacy law. There was just normal parentage law. And normal parentage law essentially says, even if you have competing presumptions about who the mother is, the two that apply to a woman are giving birth and using your egg. And at that time, almost all surrogates fell into that category. So for all purposes, judges looked at the law of parentage and saw that there was no established precedent for taking away parental rights from a woman who gave birth under a surrogacy contract. And in fact, in Baby M, they gave her rights without any visitation and without any contact and awarded custody to the father. So watch what you wish for when you can test these things. But so at that time, given that legal overlay and that legal confusion, about a dozen states, including New York, Michigan, New Jersey, and a number of others passed laws saying either surrogacy is unenforceable or it's criminalized. But what they were really aimed at is this surrogacy that had no legal alternative or pathway to make the surrogate not the parent and the intended mother the parent. And about five to six years after Baby M, California did the case in Johnson v. Calvert where it was a gestational surrogacy. And over that six years, IVF had blossomed and become more successful and was now the predominant method of creating birds so that when a surrogate gestated an embryo using the intended mother's egg that she gave birth, that presumption was split and it at least gave the court a philosophical pathway to say the surrogate's not the mother, the genetic mother and the intended mother is the mother. And the first case in California essentially used intent to break the tie between those two co-equal presumptions. But after that, Virtually all of the legislation that's been passed since 1993 has been facilitative of the process. And other than um, Florida and Louisiana, it's been passed with very few limitations and they all allow compensation. 
than all of the other states that don't have law and don't have case law have procedures through which surrogacy is safely done. So what that means is, since the United States is a favorable environment and a reliable legal environment for parents to come and receive legal relationship to their children, anyone who wants to do this process that lives in a country where it is illegal is going to look at this as a desirable place to come to do the medical and the legal procedure and then return home with their child. And the fact is that surrogacy is essentially illegal in most developed countries. There are some developing countries in which the process is done, India, Thailand, Georgia, Ukraine, Russia, but in all those places, it's quite a different process. It's poor women, uh, not properly represented, not fully educated, no relationship or connection to the intended parents. And many of those destinations don't allow gay parents to use the process at all. So what it results in for those people that want a stable, ethical, human process, both heterosexual and gay, is to look at the United States as a safe place to come and have children. And let's just admit the fact that procreating is a fundamental human drive. It is something that is going to happen. and People are going to overcome any obstacle, including legal impediments, to find a way to have children. And that drives the international community to the U.S. where they can safely have children. Now, when they get here, we can look at surrogacy as, gee, just a local problem. We want to help the infertile couples that live next door to us. Or we want to help the infertile couples that live in our country. And I look at it globally. I want to help parents that want children and can't have them without assistance have children. I don't care where they live. I think it's a global human issue. And I have no issue with people crossing international borders to make that happen. So we facilitated very well. I'm amazed just kind of the thinking. I mean, there's there's obviously multiple different objections or issues when people talk about surrogacy. But one of the big ones that we even hear internally is this idea about exploitation of women. And I, I think that there is fair concern if you look at you know, India, where there was situations where you're reading the news about women being taken from very, very poor situations and like told lies and then like taken from their family and house somewhere and carrying a child for someone and not given the money they were promised and not well taken care of. And that, of course, is horrific. But here, I mean, that is not what's happening. And I, I always think it's amazing that like under the guise of exploitation of women, we're going to tell women what they can or cannot do like that is so so like in new york i know they've been fighting for compensated surrogacy and gloria steinem a huge feminist came out saying no exploitation of women we can't allow this and i just think well as a feminist you should be fighting for women to to be able to choose if they want to help their friends choices with their lives yeah um do you what are you seeing internationally as the big like do you see that objection are you seeing others as the biggest kind of mental roadblock to to seeing a different way of creating families this way? Um, there are fundamental differences in the culture and society between Western Europe and other developed countries 
in the U.S. The most fundamental is that the law that is developed in Europe regarding parentage essentially is based upon the immutable and irreversible presumption that the woman who gives birth is the mother of the child. They don't have the Uniform Parentage Act. They don't utilize competing genetic presumption to choose between two mothers. In most of those countries, if you give birth, you're the mother. Under their legal system, it cannot be varied. And if you're married to her, you're the father and in most countries. that's played out in interesting ways. I know there's we've had cases of mix-ups or embryo mix-ups, and there was a case in Italy where they transferred the wrong embryos to you know, not the genetic parents, but to someone else. And there was a case there and the woman who gave birth was deemed the legal parent of, in this case, twins versus the genetic parents. And that's always going to be the case under European law. So clearly surrogacy does not dovetail with the law of parentage in Europe, but it does work here where the evolution of our parentage law initially took the fact that a husband may not be the father if there's a different genetic father, and then the evolution to gender neutrality under the 1973 UPA that said, you know, that also all the provisions of this statute also apply to women. So if someone gives birth and someone else is the genetic mother, we get to choose. So we have a legal system that opens our doors to that possibility. And in most other international destination, that door is shut, locked, and barricaded, and they can't get beyond that. And therefore, surrogacy is just immoral because if it's her baby, which it is in their law, in their philosophical societal eyes, when she hands that baby over to someone else, she's not getting paid for services. She's getting paid to give them her baby. And that's not how we look at it. Now, some other things that impact that are there's a very strong residual influence, even in modern society, of connection between church and monarchies and church and government in Europe. And much of it is the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church takes the view that any assisted reproduction, anything to create a pregnancy other than natural intercourse, is immoral and unholy. So they are opposed not only to surrogacy, but sperm donation, egg donation, IVF, artificial insemination. It will all send you to hell. So there is that subconscious message that's put out into the population through that very influential entity. In addition, in Europe, doctors and medicine, because most of the provision of medical services is governmental controlled, those societies put a lot of restrictions and boundaries and barriers and dictate the doctor-patient relationship. So outlawing egg donation or surrogacy as a medical process is not much of a stretch for them. In the United States, the government has generally had a very laissez-faire, hands-off policy toward doctor-patient relationship, and there isn't a lot of regulation that directly intervenes or precludes treatment of a patient's condition. So we have a much more medically hands-off position here, which allows surrogacy to flourish. The federal government isn't legislating against it. Uh, state governments are starting to, but they're not often going right 
directly to how many embryos are transferred, et cetera. It's, it's the parentage process, not the medical process. In addition, we have a very individual constitution here, which creates the Bill of Rights with a whole host of individual rights that are guaranteed. And the penumbra of the 14th Amendment in, has stated that the right to govern family matters, including the right to procreation, is a fundamental, fundamentally protected constitutional right that cannot be interfered with by the government except based upon significant cause. So we have a constitutional right that in a federal district court in Utah has been applied to surrogacy in an unpublished case. It's not precedent, but it sure shows how a court may look at it. And that fundamental right to procreate does not exist in, your, in Europe. What they keep saying in the international confabs that I go to is, nobody has the right to a child. And I go, no, but they have the right to procreate their own child. And then they look at me and go, but it's not their child. It's the woman who gives birth. And I go, now we uh, have the nub of the argument that's what they and we're never yeah. going to agree. Uh, yeah, that's rough. Um, yeah, no, it's been very interesting. I, we, we did get to see a, a conference panel where some of the, the biggest um, anti-surrogacy attorneys in the country went against some of ours that were pro surrogacy to argue the constitutional basis. So that that was interesting to hear you bring up the, the penumbra of the 14th amendment to, because obviously people who are against it argue in the constitution that there there's, it's anti surrogacy, but it's all, you know, really trying to, to build something that's not directly there. Uh, so Steve, do you actually, do you see movement in this? Do you see that any attitudes are changing, especially in, you know, outside of the United States and Western and Europe and, you know, Asia, anywhere else. Are you seeing movements or changes in those attitudes towards surrogacy? For better or worse, quite honestly. Yes. It can go both ways. Um, it can go both ways. The good thing is that just from a parentage process, when people from other countries in which surrogacy is illegal come here and do surrogacy. When they return home, they're generally not at risk for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, for example, in France, where they had a law criminalizing surrogacy, when a French couple did it here and returned home, the courts ruled, well, they didn't break our law. It was legal where they did it. They didn't break our law because they didn't do it here. Um, what the issue was is whether the child could be registered as a French citizen and made their child for family purposes. And in France and Germany and Italy and most of the countries where governments may have tried to intervene in surrogacies and say, we're going to take your child away, all of the cases that have gone up to the governing umbrella court, the European Court of Human Rights, have essentially based their outcome on the best interests of the child and said, well, you have a political opposition to this process, but they didn't break your law. They did it where it was legal. Now the issue is whether they should be parents in the best interests of the child dictate that, yes, they should be. Assuming they have a genetic connection or some other European recognized connection to the child that allows parentage. 
There was an Italian case where a couple used donated sperm and donated egg and came home with the child, and they did take the child away because there was no view under European law that either of the parents was the parent. So it's a complicated mix when they go home, but ultimately it's a question of statelessness of the children if the countries to which they return refuse to recognize parental rights or citizenship. And that becomes a human rights issue for children to this date that has been resolved in favor of protecting the children and granting them stable parentage with the people who procreated and giving them citizenship so that they can have a state to which they belong. So it's a complicated milieu. There are a lot of diversions, but at the end of the day, to date, that's been the rule. Now, there are countries looking at passing new laws that say, if you go to another country and you come home, you won't be the parents and we won't give citizenship. And they're trying to make it specific uh, that it's a crime to leave a country and go somewhere where surrogacy is legal. That's been proposed in Australia. And I hope the law doesn't evolve in that way, but that is a way that countries could start to enforce their political opposition and social opposition to the process. It hasn't happened yet anywhere. It is a topic for discussion. There is also a counter movement to allow surrogacy in the UK. They just had a commission, joint commission between Scotland and the UK, look at their surrogacy laws and make some proposals. Um, they're still generally trending toward Yes, we'll allow surrogacy, but no, you can't pay a surrogate, which effectively frustrates the process because very few women are willing to do it without some sort of time consideration for their services. And in some cases, yes, you can do it, but you can't use an intermediary. You can't have an agency because people shouldn't be profiteering on reproduction. So there are some limitations that come around the periphery of this that are also not desirable because frankly, reputable, reliable, efficient agencies are what keeps the process safe and ethical. In the UK, they don't allow you to, an attorney to consult with anyone regarding a surrogacy contract. So before people actually enter into an arrangement and have a child, an attorney can't even talk to them wow. about what the ramifications are. Wow. It's illegal. And they can't draft contracts and they can't have agencies. So the number of contested cases is much higher there because they don't have supervision and yet they don't recognize that by barring, quote, intermediaries, unquote, they're taking the stability and the expertise that keeps the process safe and reliable out of the process. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, that is. And the other, th the other trend is trying to make it all such intermediaries, nonprofit, like adoption agencies. And how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I'm not sure how that improves the process because even nonprofits can set wages and salaries and expenses so that, I mean, I'm not sure how it changes the perspective of the agency or the financial impetus to open one. Uh, it's, sub, it's a subject for debate. 
Are you more nervous about certain countries or certain types of intended parents when you start looking at a gestational care arrangement than others? Um, in other words, are there certain countries in which the process doesn't necessarily dovetail with the cultural view? Right, where you see the, the legal risks being higher in the arrangement. Legal risks? Parentage no. risks, yeah. <laughs> Social risks? I am going to have to out myself as a non-proponent of certain cultural interfaces with the process. There are certain cultures, which I will not specifically name, um, that simply have a higher rate of disconnect with how I perceive the process. I perceive surrogacy as a human interaction between the family, the procreators, and the people that are helping them. And there should be a human and emotional connection there. It should be very carefully crafted by matching people with similar philosophical views and desires for the process. And when those marriages are made between intended parents and surrogates, it's a positive process that results in a lifelong relationship between those participants. There are many people who don't pay attention to making those matches in accordance with the compatibility of the parties. There are certain cultures that believe inherently in their culture that money equals priority. So they will flood a lot of money into the process thinking they can buy surrogates out of line, essentially, without respecting the people that signed up ahead of them, uh, that they can get special treatment, and that when they do hire a surrogate, they don't have to communicate at all. They can just have that woman bear their child. And oh, by the way, I'm sending a, a date third party to come pick them up. Yeah. Governess over to receive the child or gee, will you just take care of the child for the first three weeks? Cause it's not convenient for me to come and pick it up. And those kinds of stories are more prevalent in certain cultures than others. And in those cultures where that human disconnect is present, I find it problematic. I see that. I am. Uh, <laughs> I've definitely seen some of those situations come up. Well, and it's the same culture that says, I want to, I want five kids. So I want to hire five women at the same time to carry five different children. And no, I really don't care if I met all the birds. I mean, come what on. do you, what do you see as this a solution is, to that though? Besides obviously good, good agencies acting ethically and things like that. I mean, be, besides that, which is also a different struggle in a different direction. <laughs> um, I believe that it is incumbent upon the people who facilitate the process here to protect against those kinds of incompatible uses of the process. The doctors have to be unwilling to do multiple transfers. The agencies have to be unwilling to do multiple matches. The agencies have to resist giving favors, you know, creating, oh, we have a platinum track as opposed to our gold track. 
And in your gold track, you have to stay in line. But in the platinum track, if you pay an extra $10,000, we'll put you at the head of the line. Okay, that's just profiteering. And it, it disadvantages the people with less money. And that's my saw. I was a teacher. I want normal people to be able to have children. I don't want whether you can afford to have children to be the reason you do or don't. So people that allow money to change the process to the benefit of those who have it and the detriment of those who don't are not my favorite people. But so I think we need to somehow institutionalize a collective awareness of, for lack of a better term, what's right and what's wrong. And if you want to make a million dollars in a business, go find a different business. Don't make it off the sweat of people that just want to have children. And don't succumb to that. And I think Seeds is an entity that can begin to craft logical and reasonable parameters for the process for agencies so that agencies themselves start to discipline the process by corralling these crazy people that think they should have privileges into a process that doesn't allow them to. Now, we can give validation through membership in such an organization to those agencies that follow it, but is every agency going to join seeds? Nope. Are there going to be people willing to circumvent it to make money? Yep. But at least we can identify them then. So I think there has to be a coalescence of some sort of collective awareness and consensus on what is right and what's wrong. And it needs to be put out there and made a condition of membership in an ethical organization like SEED so that we are keeping the process pure and human and the way we describe it to policymakers in order to encourage them to allow it. We're doing it the right way. We're protecting everybody's interests. We're being ethical. Well, then we have to be, or the process is going to disappear. And as full disclosure, Steve and I are both on the board of seeds. So. Right? Let's throw that out there. Well, yeah. yeah that's true. Just to be totally honest true. and transparent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I have to do my disclaimer of um, participation like they do at right, all those right? <laughs> Steve, what are your thoughts? I feel like there's some mixed thinking when it comes to whether intended parents should be um, screened better or have restrictions. And part of it, you know, if you naturally conceive, right, there's no, you're not barred from doing it if you committed a crime before. What are What are your feelings when it comes to, to screening or restricting intended parents in the surrogacy area? Well, I understand how that gets pulled into the process, but it comes from and is rooted in the adoption process, a process in which a woman is actually giving up her child to someone else. And in the past, a century ago, when adoption meant a woman gave up her child to a state adoption facility, and then the state became in parents patriae, or in the place of a parent of the child, when numerous unrelated people came to say, we want to raise that child, it's incumbent upon the state 
to verify the suitability and the safety of those homes. And in that process, a home study and vetting of parents to make sure that the best parents are used is appropriate because it's not their baby and nobody does have the right to parent when it's someone else's child. Surrogacy, in my mind, is distinguished because it's not adoption. It's not taking someone else's child. It is procreating your own child. And as you say, nobody vetted me. We can tell. Before right? I had my two kids. And, and there are some people nice. there are some people that know me that wonder if I would have had kids had they vetted me. In fact, I wonder if my kids don't wonder if I should have been vetted. But we'll leave that for another day. So nobody's and I don't want to be pejorative in, in making these references, but nobody's looking at the women on welfare that have 10 children by 10 different fathers uh, and, and are essentially pregnancy machines for welfare benefits. Nobody's preventing criminals that get out of state institutions from going and having children with their girlfriends. Nobody's checking on natural procreation. And should we impose inapplicable screening from a process that is totally distinguishable from surrogacy onto parents that are procreating. Let's take the purest form, their egg, their sperm, their embryo. And when that thing is sitting in cryopreservation at a facility, that's their child. And should we say, we're not going to prevent you from creating your embryo, but if you have uterine infertility, we're going to prevent you from bringing it into existence because you fail this screening or that screening or this requirement for good parenting. If it's procreation, it's procreation. It should all be treated the same. So I don't think there should be investigations or barriers to participating in surrogacy, which doesn't mean I don't think you should do criminal background checks and psychological consultations for parents that bring out their history and the nature of their persons and their family, but not for a qualification to participate in the process purpose, but for full disclosure. That has to be informed disclosure to the surrogate too, because she has- The right. surrogate is electing to help a family. It is the surrogate's inherent right to also choose the family that she wants to help. So just as the parents are entitled to full disclosure about who the surrogate is to decide whether they want her to carry their child, the surrogate's entitled to full disclosure about the intended parents so that if the, the guy has a sexual misconduct case against him and a conviction when he was 18 and he had sex with his 15-year-old cousin, but now he's 36 and he's had an exemplary and stellar record since then, she at least knows it happened, knows its distance in time, and can say that that concerns me or it doesn't. And I think all of that full disclosure and complete awareness of both parties is necessary. So I believe that intended parents should be fleshed out and identified in all of their aspects, but I don't think it should be the purpose for preventing them from participating in the process. Now, there are some things that may mean no surrogate will ever match them. Right. Mm -hmm. Gee, you drowned your last two kids in the bathtub. You don't get to have another one. Right. 
you know? So it's a very squishy, amorphous, ambiguous gateway for parents to go into a medically and third-party assisted process to have kids. But if you're talking about it from the procreative side, I think you've got to look at it as natural procreation and allow everybody access to the process subject to the willingness of other people on a fully informed basis. So a little bit um, surrogacy adjacent, but there is also a lot of controversy, especially internationally when it comes to embryo testing, whether it should be allowed, what kind. So for example, probably one of the most controversial is um, testing for the sex of the the child that would be resulting from the embryo and whether intended parents can choose that. What are your, your thoughts on testing restrictions, if they should apply at some point or generally freedom to test? Well, this is manipulation of the embryo and it depends on what kind of testing you're talking about. I mean, if we're just talking about removing some cells to do identification of chromosomally normal embryos for the efficacy of the parent's process in an already overly expensive process to ensure the likelihood of a successful pregnancy early in the process. And for the benefit of the children that result by making sure that we have embryos that are chromosomally normal, so we have a very reduced risk of any malformation in the uterus or any genetic defects, that will build out of the process the whole termination issue, which is a lightning rod for opposition to the process. I think all of those are desirable outcomes. And if the testing is being done for that, it should be. If you're talking about testing that's done for that purpose, that tangentially then identifies gender and people use embryos of a particular gender, I still don't have an opposition to that. It's going to be rare that a parent in this day and age uses it for gender identification, but not for genetic normalcy. So I think those two things, whereas it used to be before chromosomal identification was so advanced and developed that sometimes people did it solely for gender identification. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think gender identification is just a subset of something that's already a normal, accepted, and appropriate process. So that kind of testing I don't have any problem with. Is there a risk to the embryo? Yes. Do some embryos upon removal of cells for testing fail to develop further? Yes. Is that a problem? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're a personhood advocate that as soon as fertilization occurs, that's a human being. And by removing a cell and killing the embryo, you've killed a human being to them. Yeah, it's an issue. Uh, practically speaking, is that accurate? No, because, you know, I, I, I taught a assisted reproductive technology course at law school for many years. And the wonderful textbook by Judith Dar that I tended to ground most of my discussions in uh, discussed the fact that, you know, upon fertilization, we haven't decided how many embryos they are going to be because they could split. Um, it can move from male to female. It can do many morphs in the first 10 days, meaning that at the point of fertilization, we have no idea how many people 
persons there may be or what gender they may be or what traits they may have. So I don't think personhood applies to fertilization. And if it's not a person and there's harm to the embryo upon testing, I don't think you're killing somebody. I think you're just doing what's a desirable part of the process for people that are already in an overly expensive process to just do what everybody else can do naturally. Um, what, sorry, changing gears again. So for all of our international listeners, I'm, you know, we, we've seen the stats. There's a few, we know they're out there. Um, what, I mean, what hope do you think they have for things getting better or if it's not good, kind of what advice um, do you have for them for potential hopeful parents who are maybe thinking about starting to look at becoming parents and might need to turn surgery? Well, the first thing, the first advice that I give any parent who lives in an international destination to which they expect to return to the chip with their child after surrogacy is before you start the process, before you pay a dollar to a lawyer, a doctor, an agency, in any other country where surrogacy is legal, first, Identify and contact an experienced and knowledgeable lawyer in your home country Amen. and say, if I do this and I come back with a child, what is my process? What are my obstacles? What are my prospects and outcomes? Mm -hmm. And what's the cost? Because they're going to hear about the cost in the destination country. You go back to the UK, there are some attorneys charging 10 or 12,000 pounds which is like twice the dollar uh, to do parentage orders there. So they need to know both the cost and the legalities. And the reason that they have to consult with an attorney and not prior parents is because the laws in Europe are fluid and governmental changes may affect uh, the outcome in Belgium, where I was just for a conference and I presented on American law with a Belgian attorney to the audience of Belgian parents, the Belgian attorney said, how and whether you can do this process and what form you need the documents in varies from town to town wow. and changes from election to election as to who the, wow. the services person is at the parentage office. So you have to talk to an attorney who knows how variable the situation is, where you have to live within a country to have favorable outcomes. And if there is any rumbling in the political entity, the government or the social entity that enforces placement of children, that's going to change that. And just because you talked to five parents that two years ago had kids and brought them back and were able to get citizenship and parentage, doesn't mean going forward that will still be available. And the people that are going to be aware of the changes are going to be the lawyers that practice in the area. So that is my first yes. and foremost admonition. And yes, I have had parents faced with this super expensive process that when I say that to them, respond, are you telling me you won't help me unless I talk to an attorney here first? To which I say no. It's not a requirement, it's a suggestion. <laughs> but they're highly offended that I put barriers on their reproductive process because they don't want to spend the money for another attorney. 
So there is some resistance to that concept, but I think it's the fundamental and first thing that everybody should do. And then they should have that attorney communicate with the attorney that's going to do the parentage process in the U.S. Because in some countries, pre-birth orders are fine. Some countries like Belgium, you're better off having an adoption order because they will simply recognize that and put the parents' names on the birth record, even if they're gay. In some countries, adoption is a problem. Like the UK has a law that affects inter-country adoption, that if you do a step-parent adoption as part of your process, it's a criminal act in the UK. In some countries, they need single mothers like Germany because of the presumption of the husband as the father. Uh, there are many individual aspects that beyond knowing what the law is going forward, it should shape the process you do in the U.S. and your U.S. attorney should know what the best organization of the process and documentation thereafter is sent home with them is so that if there is an ability to shape the process ahead of time, they're shaping it appropriately by country and every country is different. Right. Well, that was excellent advice. And we really appreciate your, your thoughts, your opinions, your expertise in sharing that it is a very complex world throughout the, the country and throughout the, the entire world of the different opinions. Um, but we appreciate you you sharing and being an expert. And if the other starting place after you talk to your local attorney, of course, is to give um, Mr. Snyder a call as well. Right now, <laughs> all, all of our guests. Oh, yeah. uh, oh, oh, look, look at all Everybody the lines on my phone are lighting right. up. <laughs> thank you, Steve. We really appreciate you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys too. I am uh, excited to have been asked to con converse about this. And I think the questions you asked were excellent and will help people in the process. So good job, guys. Good job. Woo, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Steve, for sharing your words of wisdom, expertise. I'm sure at your hourly rate, everyone should probably be um, at least donating, you know, four or $500 to the podcast for getting a chance to listen right? to that for free is my theory. Or, right? or at least a favorite charity. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> or to Steve directly. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, Steve is incredible and we really appreciate the generosity of his time. So um, always, always generosity of people around us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to uh, our, uh, our team who makes us sound incredible. Chris at Work at Bird Studios, as always. Always, always, always. Thank you, number one. Uh, Amanda in our office, as well as Ashley and Lexi, who is out on maternity leave now. So, yay! We're so excited for her. I mean, we're sad that she's gone, but we are so, so excited. With her with her keeper baby, as she likes to call keeper it. Baby. You know, so when, selfish. When you work in surrogacy, baby, right? people are caring for others. You have to clarify, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm keeping this one. Like, oh, this one is mine. Yeah, no, this one is actually genetically mine. I'm keeping it. Yeah, no. So we, we appreciate her and we are so, so excited for her and her family, her growing family. So um, as always, if y'all have any feedback for us, uh, give us a call at 303 303- 997-1903 or shoot us an email. Uh, we really do. We love to hear feedback from people. So thank you so much. We'll talk to you all next week. 